Well, as Connie told the kids, we are in John 14, so I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word there, or you can find the text printed in your bulletin, John 14, verses 1 through 7. For those visiting with us, we're nearing the end of a study of the seven I Am statements of Jesus that I've entitled, Who is Jesus? Now, most of us know who Jesus is, but my fear is that we've become complacent with our knowledge and that our view is actually kind of limited. So we're looking at these seven I Am statements so that we can stand in awe of who our Savior is. Before I read this passage, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help and His blessing. Gracious God, you've told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Lord, help us to set aside the things that distract us, the burdens that we carry, and when we find hope in you and in your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Back in 1988, the Winter Olympics were aired on television, and right before they came on TV, there was a special program about skiing. But it wasn't just any ordinary skiing. It was about individuals who could not see, who were blind, doing slalom skiing believe it or not. I can't even imagine myself doing slalom skiing, and I can see just fine. But they showed how this works. They would get on a flat uh, area first and would just practice turning left and right. And once those turns were mastered, these individuals were taken up to the slalom slopes where a skier who could see would skied right beside them and would shout commands, left, right, left, right. And as they obeyed the commands, they were able to navigate the course and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skier's words. It was either complete trust or total catastrophe. Trust. You know, that's really what so much of life is all about, isn't it? Children trust their parents to provide for them, If a marriage is going to be healthy, you have to have trust between a husband and wife. We trust that our cars are going to work. If you fly in an airplane, you trust that the plane's going to fly, even if you don't understand how it stays up in the air. Sorry, Matt. I don't get it. Well, Jesus teaches us something 
here in John chapter 14 about trust. Last week, we looked at John 11, where Jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life. And after that text there, at the end of that chapter, he raises Lazarus from the dead, pointing forward to his own resurrection. In chapter 12 of John, we find the triumphal entry. What we celebrate is Palm Sunday, next Lord's Day. And then in chapter 13 begins what we call the upper room discourse. Chapters 13 to 17, it's Jesus' final teaching to his disciples prior to his arrest and his crucifixion. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. Except standing where we stand today, we know it's not the end, is it? Jesus is about to face a horrific death at the hands of Roman executioners. On top of that, his own father is going to disown him. Can you imagine the confusion for the disciples? I mean, he's told them that he's about to leave. These 12 men had left everything to follow Jesus. They'd spent three years learning from him, and now he's going to leave them? What? On top of that, Jesus foretold them that one of them was going to betray him, and then the devil entered Judas, and he went out. After that, Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. Talk about adding insult to injury. No wonder Jesus says in verse 1 of our passage, let not your hearts be troubled. He knows that their hearts are full of trouble and fear. They're confused, and he's offering them words of comfort, words of hope, words of life. He tells them, believe in God, believe also in me. This command has the sense of believe and keep on believing. And so the music group Journey really did have it right when they sang, don't stop believing. Well, maybe they didn't have it completely right because then they go on to sing, hold on to that feeling and, you know, it gets a little strange there. In the midst of our uncertainty and confusion, we're called to trust God. And believe it or not, that's really what this six I am statement of Jesus is all about. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This morning, we're really going to zero in on just this verse, verse 6. The surrounding verses are going to help guide our thoughts a little bit. But we're really going to dive into what Jesus says, John 14, verse 6. And so first, Jesus is the way. While truth and life are important, this first statement of Jesus being the way really takes primacy in Jesus' words in this 6 I am statement. We can and rightfully should think of the way as a path. Imagine a trail in the woods. You know, a a path, a way, a trail connects two places. You have the trailhead, the starting point, and the, the end. Maybe it's a beautiful waterfall or a scenic overlook, something to that effect. Well, what's the starting point if Jesus is the way? The starting point is where we are and who we are when we're born in this world. And contrary to popular opinion today, people aren't born basically good. No, rather, we're born into sin, born with a sin nature. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
It's not fun to admit. It's not the positive, uplifting message we always want to hear. But you and I are sinners. Even the cutest little baby is a sinner. And we have a new baby in the life of this church. And little Charlie is a super cute baby, as all babies are, right? But even as cute as he is, he's a sinner. And so are all of us. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think that you're a pretty good person. Let me remind you the words of Scripture that actually you're not. Apart from Jesus, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We must acknowledge that we are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His wrath and displeasure. Why do we need to admit this? Well, if we don't, we're not going to look to Him for help. Well, if the starting point is us being dead in our sin, what's the ending point of the way? Well, that's the question Thomas asks in verse 5. After Jesus says, you know where I'm going, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, there's an important lesson there. If you don't know the end destination, it's hard to really know the way. Albert Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train. The conductor came down to punch tickets, and Dr. Einstein reached in his pocket for his ticket, and he couldn't find it. And he reached in his coat pocket, couldn't find it there, looked everywhere in the seat next to him. Finally, the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, like, I know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. It's okay. Keeps walking, keeps punching tickets. Finally, the conductor gets to the end of the car, getting ready to go to the next one, looks back and sees Dr. Einstein on his hands and knees, looking under his seat, trying to find his ticket. So he goes back, says, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. It's okay, I'm sure you bought a ticket. Einstein said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I am going. And that's the disciples right here. They don't know where Jesus is going. They don't know where they're going. And they should know if they had paid better attention. But they're confused. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He lovingly tells them. The end destination is the Father's house. It's heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. It's eternal life in the presence of God Almighty. Which raises an important question. Is this your destination? Is this where you're seeking to go after this life? The beginning is that we're dead and sinned, and the end is life forevermore in the presence of God. So what is the way? How do we get there? What does Jesus say? He says, I am the way. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'll show you the way. I'll blaze a path through the woods and just follow along, follow me. No, He says, I am the way. Surely he tells us about the way in his word. He shows us the way, but he only can do that because he himself is the way. How is he the way? It's through his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death on the cross. The way was and still is the way of the cross. That's it. And notice that Jesus doesn't say that he is a way. No, he is the way. Now, we live in a postmodern culture that promotes the idea of tolerance and inclusivity. And we certainly want to be respectful of people who disagree with us. We don't want to be jerks. 
But the truth of the Bible is, in some ways, a message of intolerance and exclusivity. Jesus is the only way. No other path works. And my guess is you're not here this morning and thinking that Hinduism or Buddhism is a path that will get you to heaven. Maybe you think that'll work for other people, and we'll talk about that later in our message. But sometimes, functionally, you and I live as if we don't think that Jesus is the only way, that other ways might work. What might that look like? Well, for one, it might be the idea that, well, you know, I kind of experience God best in nature. You ever thought that or maybe heard someone say that? I worship God best when I'm seeing a beautiful sunset or I'm out in my boat fishing or when I'm on the golf course. The problem with that approach is that you can't find God in nature. Sure, you can learn things about God, but as Paul says in Romans 1, that's enough to condemn you. James Montgomery Boyce says, what you are really doing is using nature as an excuse to avoid God. Actually, you do not want to be with Christian people, nor do you wish to be under the preaching of the word. You find it disturbing. What you are really trying to do is escape from God into nature. If you worship anything at all, it's nature you worship. And the worship of nature is idolatry. Maybe that's you or someone you know. Perhaps that's not you, but instead you try to make it to God by your morality. You think, hey, if I'm a good person, I'll make it to heaven. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then then God has to love me. I mean, there's a lot of commands in the Bible, right? You just need to obey them. The problem with that line of thinking is that God demands perfection. Even if you could clean yourself up, and you can't, it still wouldn't be enough. For even one small sin is enough to condemn you to the wrath of God forever. Maybe you're here today and you're trying to rely on your good deeds. Maybe that's why you're here to begin with. I'm at church. Certainly God's pleased with me because I'm here, right? If that's you, I pray you see the hamster wheel that you're on. You can run and you can run and you can run, but it's not going to get you anywhere. God's not going to be pleased. One other way we live like Jesus isn't the only way is by simply adding Jesus to the equation. You know, sometimes we're good with Jesus as long as we can kind of add him on to some other things, maybe some vague spirituality or astrology or something else. Or it looks like jumping from Jesus to something else, going back and forth. I'll worship Jesus a little bit and I'll kind of worship something else, the God of comfort, God of pleasure, God of safety, God of success. be easy to want Jesus as long as he can be ours part of the time and he doesn't make any demands on our life. Elder George Cox has been teaching on Wednesday nights on the life of Elijah and one verse that's really resonated with me this semester is 1 Kings 18 21 where Elijah says how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God follow him but if Baal then follow him. How often are we like that? We go back and forth. We'll worship God a little bit here on Sundays, and then we'll worship our job during the week, or our children, or you name it. And what are we functionally saying? Jesus, you're not the only way. Something else is. But friends, Jesus is the way. 
Only through his life, death, and resurrection can anyone get to God. Are you trusting him as the way? But not only is Jesus the way, he's also the truth. I mentioned earlier that truth and life are subordinate to the way. This doesn't mean that Jesus is the true and living way, but rather because he is the way, then he's also the truth and the life. So what does it mean that Jesus is the truth? I mean, we know that Jesus spoke the truth. He was truthful. He never lied. And that's part of the equation. But Jesus goes further. Commentator D.A. Carson says, Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God, says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. Indeed, he is properly called God. God, or he is God's gracious self-disclosure, his word made flesh. Everything Jesus says is true. Everything he does is true. And one of his primary purposes in coming to earth was to reveal God the Father to us. In Jesus, the invisible God became visible. He perfectly reveals the infinite God of the universe to finite people like you and me. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Sometimes we think, man, it'd be so cool to hear God's voice audibly, to sit down and have a conversation face-to-face with God. But friends, God has spoken. He's spoken through his son, Jesus. He speaks through the word of Jesus, the Holy Scriptures, which means you and I must be people of God's word. Our society is one that says truth is relative. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Oprah Winfrey has made the phrase, your truth, popular. By which I think she means that your experience and your understanding, which might not be what some people in power want to hear, is what you need to tell the world. The only problem with that is that the truth is the truth. It's unchanging. We can argue with it, we can deny it, but the truth doesn't change. Years ago, before the invention of the television or the internet, a man fulfilled his lifelong dream of owning a barometer. When the instrument arrived at his home, he was extremely disappointed to find that the indicating needle appeared to be stuck, pointing only at the sector marked hurricane. After shaking the barometer furiously several times, he sat down and wrote an anger to the company, or wrote a letter to the company in anger, expressing his frustration about selling a broken product. The following morning, on his way to the office in New York, he mailed the letter. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find not only the barometer missing, but also his house. The barometer's needle had been right. There was a hurricane. Friends, the truth is the truth. It doesn't matter if we disagree with it. We don't like it. We can bury our heads in the sand, but it doesn't change the fact And Jesus is the truth. You might be frustrated by that, but you can't change the truth. Finally, Jesus is the life. 
John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Because Jesus has the life within him, he can give that life to others. Last week in John 11, we saw Jesus saying that he is the resurrection and the life. Here, Jesus is the life. If you haven't noticed, these seven I am statements are interconnected. They build upon each other. They help us better understand who Jesus is. Remember, we began this message by realizing that we're dead in our sin. Spiritually dead people need life, and that's what Jesus offers. You see, Jesus didn't come to find basically good people and clean them up a little bit and put them back on the shelf. He didn't come to give you some tools of the trade so that you can figure this life out yourself and earn your way to heaven. No, he came to find people dead in their sin and to give them life forevermore. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, The Lord himself speaks, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Your biggest need and my biggest need is spiritual life. Perhaps you're here today and you know that you don't have spiritual life. Come and find it in Jesus. Embrace the life that he offers. If you are here and you've trusted in Jesus, then your greatest need has been met in Jesus. But my guess is you know people that don't know him, that don't have the life of Jesus. Do you pray for them? You pray that God would work by his spirit to soften their hearts, that they would be receptive to the message of Christ? Are you praying for boldness that you might share Jesus with them? You know, all around us are people lost in their sins in need of life. May we take our eyes off of ourselves and ask God to give us the opportunities to share this life, this message of life with others. You know, Sheila talked about missions. Is mission something that you're involved in? Maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to be a full-time missionary. Maybe you are the answer to your prayers, as Sheila said. We all have a role to play in missions. Maybe it's to go, maybe it's to send, to pray. Certainly there's people around us who need hope. After Jesus tells us that he is the way and the truth and the life, he summarizes it with the words, no one comes to the Father except through me. As if the other statements weren't clear enough, Jesus just drives the point directly home. Couldn't be more clear. And friends, this is the offensive message of the gospel. It offends us because it says we can't find our way to God. Our world can't stand this message. According to George Barna in the American Worldview Inventory of 2023, only 35% of Americans believe that Jesus is the only way. And part of me says, I feel like that number might be too high. To the world, this belief is narrow-minded. But remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. There are few who find it. Friends, if you're here this morning and you know you're trying to find another way, to Jesus, let me just ask you, do you think God is impressed? It's tempting to think if we're sincere and genuine, surely God will be pleased and he'll accept us to heaven. 
But instead of impressing him, you're actually insulting him. God's plan was to send his one and only son. Parents, can you imagine sacrificing one of your children to save another person? Grandparents, could you imagine giving up one of your grandchildren? As a father of two, I can't even comprehend that. And yet that's what Jesus did. That's what God the Father did in sending his son. So don't spit in the face of God by trying some other way. No, embrace Jesus. Come to him. And keep coming to him. Don't put your hope in your service or your church attendance or your Bible reading. No, put your continual day-by-day hope in Jesus. As we began, don't stop believing. Trust him, for Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Let us